Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside soccer journalist Sam Griswold and the mighty might of the midfield. Playing hurt, playing through the coronavirus, a man who does believe in science, media executive Grail Hallett. Guys, what are we over today on Over the Ball? Grail. Flinny, always a pleasure. Um, I am over the EPL's lack of unity. And what I mean by that is the, the teams just can't agree. They haven't come to a decision. And uh, I guess th- their slogan would be all for one and all for one. That's their <laughs> slogan. There you go. Well, it seems to be going that way all across the world. Uh, I'll talk about it in my little vent. Sam, what do you got? Yeah, so I'm going to go with something Bundesliga related, which I know we're going to talk about later because it's coming back this weekend. But um, I'm, I'm just a bit over all these quizzes, sort of personality tests you can take online and just sort of rundowns of the Bundesliga, uh, you know, helping people pick a team to get into. Um, I know, you know, people are starved for sports or starved for soccer, but it just reminds me too much of Americans, you know, picking teams completely randomly to support in England or wherever. And I don't, to me, this is how big clubs consolidate power, become global brands, increase inequality, which I think is ruining global soccer. So Wow. wow. We just stepped go. into the UN yeah. there. I know, I'm gonna sound, I know I'm going to sound like a snob. I like it. But, you know. no, that was, I like no, you it. sounded like an educated snob there, not just well, I mean, a snob. Yeah, was... I, I mean, Sam, it's like talking to people who've watched like one soccer match in their entire life and they're just Man United fans. And you're like, yeah. and oh, how did you get there? A lot of people who know all about like the history of Liverpool as a port city and have never been there in their life. I mean, I right. stuff like that. Uh. They know that they know the Beatles started out there, so uh, that's 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 enough, I guess. Yeah, people pick a team because it's like they pick Man U because it's red, the shirts, yeah. uh, and so they're, they're really successful. <laughs> so uh, my my little beef is a little bit along the lines of what you're saying: lack of unity, every man for himself, sort of in the EPL. I feel that way in the country right now with what's going on, and I'm trying to equate it to uh, you know you have a coach. And our coach, we got to come up with a game plan so all 11 players stick to the plan. I don't mm-hmm. care if you're left or right, but like, let's say we're trying to balance uh, a pandemic along with an economic meltdown. Those are two factors. So everybody get together, come up with, with the best of a bad situation. There's going to be pain on both sides, but, but let's have a plan and let's stick to it. It's almost like being you know, in the locker room and the coach says one thing and then you're getting ready to go out and he says another thing and then you, you're getting, walking down the, the hallway to go out to the field and he says a third thing and you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what are we doing? We have no assignments. We need an assignment as a country to get through well, this. Well, as we always say, Felina, you're only as good as the players around you and if everybody's not kind of pulling together, it doesn't work. Yes, e pluribus unum, and uh, yes. one and one and one makes five if you do it right. So, uh, all right, so great show today. I'm really looking forward to getting caught up with Professor Stephen Bank. He's been a guest before. Uh, he's a professor of business law at UCLA. He teaches, amongst other things, a class on soccer law. Believe it or not, that's pretty specific. But he knows what he's talking about, and uh, we've had him on the show before. And I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. The guys and I to talk to him. Um, because uh, the U.S. women's national team's lawsuit against U.S. soccer, uh, it's it sort of, I have to say, Professor Banks sort of predicted the outcome with this recent court decision. So it will be great to get caught up with him, see what U.S. soccer's thinking, see what uh, the women's national team is thinking, and trying to figure out what's best for soccer uh, overall in this country and, and worldwide. 
All right, Over the Ball is brought to you today by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for Soccer America's pro membership for just $49 a year or $4.90 a month. Uh, and Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets anywhere. So, you know, it's interesting. We're going to be talking to Professor Bank here. Um, and just yesterday, the Cal State system closed for the fall of 2020. Students will do courses online, which means 23 schools in the CCIA conference, men's and women's soccer, will be on hold. So uh, a, a brave new world we're, we're facing, gentlemen, aren't we? Yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. Who, who knows what that's going to mean? I, I saw a quote from somebody from that system saying today that, well, wait a second, sports may not be out of the realm of possibility. So we'll see how that all shakes out, you know, among the different schools, the D2 versus the D1. So it's going to be that that is not a finished deal yet, I think, for yeah. for sports in the fall. We'll have to see how that. There's so many people to feel bad for. I mean, yeah. the lack of revenue being brought in, the amount of jobs that are not being uh, attended to, you know, for, for lack of, of anything. Uh, and But basically also the kids, the, the students, you know, these uh, – I mean, I mean, think about it. We're getting ready for your fall season. It was our whole life. It was yeah. uh, everything we looked forward to. And here these kids are going through their college experience uh, with this really strange pandemic with, with no end in sight right now. So um, sports, you know, is a small part of it in the, in the general, you know, the big equation of things. But boy, it's, a, it's an intricate part of things because it's also a way to get us through these difficult times. And uh, we don't have that right now. So, uh, so that's too bad. Um, but, you know, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, guys, we talked about Paul Kennedy's uh, article last week. He's always got something good in there, the guys at Soccer America, one of our sponsors. Um, but this caught my eye. I ordered the book right away, uh, the book about the 1977 um, Hartwick team that won the national championship. The book's title is called That Little Son of a Bitch, which is a story about Billy Gazonis. So uh, I saw Billy play once and just was absolute magic. I had to tell you this. I watched the game that I saw. I saw him play Hartwick, and I forget who they were playing. I think maybe Colgate. But Billy Gazonis was in the corner by the flag, and a guy came running in at him at sort of full, you know, D1 Bottle. speed, you know, <laughs> all high up in the chest oh, yeah. and coming at him really fast. And Billy rainbowed over him. Oh. Uh, and when the ball came down, uh, he megged the second defender that came <laughs> nice. and crossed the ball. And he didn't score a goal, but I just like, my mouth was open for like 11 minutes going, what did I just see? Oh, Some yeah. really amazing stuff. Uh, so I bought the book and I'm going to uh, uh, read it in the, the coming weekend. But it's uh, a lot of famous names in there. Um, Allie Anderson was their keeper. And I had heard about that name. Uh, Jeff Tipping, who was a coach for years. Yeah. Um, with the NSCAA and all that, Duncan McDonald, Stephen Long, who was a great player from Liverpool. And I played against his brother, Davey Long, uh, who was up for the Herman as well. But uh, yeah, he, you know, this is what I say the, to young people who get discouraged uh, sometimes, you know, you, you don't make a high school team or that, that, uh, that big traveling team or whatever. Don't give up if you really believe in the sport, because all of us here know, know you know, having played at a college mm -hmm. level, boy, hang in there, learn, yeah. you know, keep playing, get stuck in. It's sort of uh, the speed of the game starts to slow down a little bit, the more you get used to it. But uh, I've noticed, you know, it used to be at UMass, Sam, uh, we'd have preseason and boy, you know, 12 guys would, would, would quit, you know, because they couldn't believe the level that was being played at. But it's like, you got to hang in there. I think what happens is these guys go through four years of high school, they become the man senior yeah. year. 
and they think they're actually really good. And then they come to a college game. And it's like, whoa, everybody's moving faster. Everybody's a good athlete. But um, Well, you, you think know, about that, that era too, Flinny, and the Northeast had some real powerhouses. You had Hartwick, you had Brown. Brown was a great team in the yeah. uh, mid to late 70s. Uh, you had UConn, obviously. Um, you know, really, I mean, the Northeast it, it, during that era was incredibly strong. Well, you had basically a different – mindset as well it was LIU before, as well yeah um yeah Rich Chinapu and uh, who was it? Artie Ramirez was the yeah. coach at LIU but there's a different mentality there now I really felt like in those years it was guys playing in the streets all day learning from an older Brazilian guy who lived mm -hmm. down the street or some German guy who sort of share the the secret language with you you know like what it was to play soccer and the and you know we just play out in the streets all day what what I think has changed from that time is uh it's too infrastructure driven now. The kids are in vans. You know, we talk about this every week. Yeah. You know, they're going to Jersey from there to Connecticut to, to Boston to, you know, in a van all day. And I don't think it actually, the kids aren't as passionate about it. And I think those are some tough boys and they played some really nice soccer. And I think Hartwick during those, that period, uh, it was a great combination of foreign players, a few of them sprinkled in and then a lot of Americans. And one of my, uh, one of my assistant coaches at UMass was Kevin Welsh, who, who wound up playing in the NASL was from uh, from that era as well. All those mm -hmm. Jersey boys, because like you talk about the Northeast between Kearney and and a couple of those schools, man, they they just they dominated for a long, long time. So anyway, it's great that the history's not forgotten, and um, it's great it'd be good for for young ones to uh, to go look back at that. So it's called that little son of a bitch. So um, so anyway, talking about uh, what people get to watch, uh, the Bundesliga opens up this weekend. Sam, we excited? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm mildly excited. I mean, I think everyone who has any interest at all in sport. Sam is always mildly. Is Sam ever totally excited by anything? No, Come on. no, he's well, always mildly on. excited. I, think, I don't know what he'd do to be really excited. I mean, I do think, and you know, I've shared stats on this show before that prove that the German league, I think, is the most dynamic and most entertaining league out there. Um, I don't have a personal connection to it, but um, – yeah, I think everyone wants to know what it's going to be like when it, you know, comes back. And any any sports league, any sports fan will be curious. Um, I'm a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit let down by the U.S. soccer community because the first game that will be televised here on FS1, 9.30 on Saturday morning, uh, is Dortmund against Schalke, which mm -hmm. uh, could be, depending on if they get in or not, you know, a matchup between Gio Reyna and Weston McKenney two of the most exciting young U.S. national team players. Uh, and I can't find any sort of, you know, preview. Uh, I mean, I can find a preview of the game, but I can't find anything anywhere that's sort of hyping this all-American matchup. So uh, I feel like there's a missed opportunity there. But um, otherwise, yeah, curious to see what the level of the play is like, the intensity, if people are trying to gather outside the stadium, you know, what are sort of the unforeseen things people haven't taken in, into consideration? This is a huge rivalry game. So, uh, you know, getting people to stay away might not be that easy. So a lot of unknowns, but yeah. yeah and Dortmund's, Dortmund's four points behind, I think, Bayern. Is that, does that sound right, Sam? That sounds about right. Yeah. Second yeah. place. I don't know what the... Yeah. But, you know, the human interest imagine. story, the, the human interest story here, which is what I think uh, coverage in this country has always lacked with soccer, sort of, um, 
you know, those two players, that, that's, a, that's a big story. That's something people want to watch. They should want to watch. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I, the risk is that you run a big story and then neither of them get in the game. So you got to yeah. take that into consideration. But Yeah, but they, they, they pitch other stuff that doesn't quite work out. They always hype stuff and it never, you know, comes to fruition in certain ways. It, I think, you know, what I'm, I'm afraid that sort of the, the coverage of soccer, since the U.S. men's team has not been as successful uh, in the past, uh, has started to recede a little bit. I mean, Grail, you're our media guy. What do you think? Is that the truth? Well, there hasn't been anything to show. I mean, right. so, you know, it's just I think every sport is suffering from the same thing. I think the really interesting thing about the Bundesliga is it is essentially the template for all global professional sports. You know, does it work? You know, how, how they obviously they have a lot of systems in place. They're being very careful. Um, but are they able to proceed, uh, you know, week to week data? They're going to play, I think, two at least two matches a week to be able to plow through the schedule. So I think it's just going to be very interesting. I think every commissioner of every major league is going to be watching very closely with the Bundesliga to see how it, how it works out. Well, this is the thing with, you know, you're talking about what is best, best practices. And, it, it, you know, not only here in the United States, every state seems to be coming up with their best practices and then not, not adhering to them as it would be. But uh, with soccer, you know, truly an international game, I mean, every country is coming up with a different set of rollout rules. So it's uh, nobody knows what the right answer is. So I guess at the end of this pandemic, we'll see which of the, which of the sort of rollouts worked and which didn't. Now, EPL has um, Project Restart, Grail. Yeah, so Project Restart is uh, in, I'll, I'll call it Project Limbo for now because they still haven't come to, they still haven't made the decision. You've got a bunch of the, the teams, of the 20 teams, a bunch of the teams are really having a hang up with a neutral venue idea, which we discussed on uh, last week's show. Um, and uh, that's really becoming a stumbling block. So they're going to have to obviously get to, I think 14 of the 20 teams have to, uh, have to vote yes to proceed and they haven't gotten there yet. You know, and a lot of the players, uh, Danny Rose from Newcastle came out with a great quote. He said, I don't give a F about the nation's morale. It's bollocks. So you have a lot of players that are still in fear of returning. Well, well, here's the thing, Grail. Here's the thing. Yeah. They want to get back. The players want their money. The owners want their money from the TV broadcasting rights. But I got to tell you, as a player, if you would say, yeah, but we want you to go back out there to, uh, to you know, finish the season, yeah. potentially expose yourself to the coronavirus, go back home to your family. I, I, I'd kind of say bullocks myself there. Be like, you know, is that safe? No, I don't care I don't about me. At all. You know, part of it's like you don't care about yourself, but having children, you're like, wow, man, my kids. It's you not, also have a me. lot of members of the medical community within the clubs, you know, the team doctors and stuff who have all sorts of concerns and basically – uh, I think ownership is telling them to shut up. It sounds very much like Tony Fauci, actually. Jeez. They're saying like, ah, we don't really need to hear from you guys. Why don't you just be quiet until we get restarted? So I'm, I'm just a scientist. I tell, I just, I am just a scientist and I will give you the facts and figures and you can make a decision on your own. I, I like uh, it. You're working on your Dr. Fauci. My Good Fauci. Very, very my Fauci. So, uh, so Sam, you got Bundesliga opening up EPL, but I know what you're waiting for. There on your couch back uh, in, in uh, wherever you are, man, uh, upstate New York. Um, Syria, what's the story with them? Uh, yeah, so the Syria clubs have voted uh, to restart on June 13th. Um, 
that's also right around when the La Liga is hoping to come back, they, that being June 12th for them. Um, you know, again, however, the ultimate say lies with the government um, in both right. cases. So I'm not going to get too excited about this and not take it as gospel. But, um, you know, it's nice to see there's some kind of plan in place. And I think, yeah, they'll probably be following the Bundesliga very closely and seeing what they can apply or what not apply, what they should not apply and see how it goes. Yeah. Cause once that government speaks, that's it. Everybody gets right into action. They snap <laughs> into action when that government speaks. I think MLS is coming back too, which is interesting. They plan to assemble all 26 teams at Disney world's ESPN wild world of sports venue in Orlando. How do you think that's going to work guys? Yeah. I, I, obviously I think that's just to uh, the way I read that was is to kind of kick things off. I don't think they're looking at, I don't know if they were looking at doing the entire season down there. That wasn't very clear, but they've got, they've got the main stadium at that complex. They've got 17 other fields in uh, uh, on the 220 acres or whatever it is. And then Orlando city, the MLS team has their stadium there too. So it makes total sense. Obviously they have uh, no shortage of accommodations in terms of hotels Mm -hmm. uh, in that area. So they can centralize everything. So I, you know, on paper, it seems like a, a good enough idea. Again, you know, none of this, you just don't know until you get started in terms of containment issues. And if one player gets infected and then spreads it, so, so yeah, who knows, man. but, but on paper, MLS sounds like they have at least a good plan in terms of keeping everything very centralized. Right. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, skipped over league Oon. I think they're having some legal problems, aren't they, Sam? Uh, yeah, so uh, one league on club, um, Amiens, I think is how you say it. Amiens. Uh, who uh, are, were one of the bottom two teams, which means they've been relegated um, with the season being canceled. Uh, have started legal proceedings for what they're claiming is their unjust relegation um, from Ligue 1. So, uh, yeah, it remains to be seen how this will be handled. Um, I wonder if it isn't a sign of bigger things to come because I've heard um, teams in Italy also threatening legal action um, should the season not continue and they end up relegated. Again, no good answer. It's amazing. And the European women's uh, pro leagues are, are uh, canceling as well, Grail? Yeah, they're kind of uh, all over the place. Well, Spain, France, and Czech, the Czech Republic and Netherlands have canceled because, you know, their prime ministers basically canceled all sports. So by association, they were canceled. Germany's uh, set to reopen uh, at the end of May in empty stadiums. Denmark is going to resume. They don't have a date yet. And England, of course, because it's England, is <laughs> still up in the air. They have a vote. I, I did want to mention one thing, Flinny, and I forgot to on the EPL thing. Uh, uh, our friends at The Athletic, who we love, uh, did a really interesting reader's poll. And there was just a couple couple things I'd like to highlight quickly. So 52% um, were okay with expanding uh, the EPL to 22 or 23 teams next season, um, if, that, if that was necessary. 75% um, of the readers were okay with neutral venues which is a lot higher than what the ownership of the teams is uh, are actually showing so wait a minute so if if you accept more teams don't relegate them and keep them in for this season that really slices up the pie a little bit more right so well you would just essentially not re yeah you would not relegate anybody but you wouldn't penalize Leeds and West Brom who are at the top of the championship league the next right. league below from coming up so you would essentially freeze the bottom of the table essentially. And then you would, uh, because 50 uh, then another, uh, 
you had some, um, you know, you have that mixed reaction about uh, 51% of the readers of the athletic were pro relegation. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of almost like a 50, 50 uh, scenario, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like the idea of just expanding the, the premier league yeah. for one year and, uh, and not penalizing anybody at the bottom, uh, the bottom six teams basically are saying we don't want to be relegated and which is why they're pushing against the uh, neutral venues. Well, I think yeah, that's yeah. that's a disadvantage to their. Well, somebody's got to eat something here, man. Uh, yeah, well, exactly, know, exactly. I mean, are we going to play or are we not going to play? And so there's got to be some compromise. So, all right. So uh, we we're talking legal issues, and uh, well, the women's league is uh, been canceled, uh, which brings us to our guest. Uh, we'll be back with him in just a little bit, Professor Bank. Is at UCLA, and uh, boy, he's, I, I love talking to this guy, fellas, because we talked to him, how many months ago was it, uh, Sam? It was like maybe six months ago. We talked about the U.S. Women's right. National Team's uh, ongoing case, and he was very, very thoughtful, uh, concise, because there's, there's two things we're going to discuss with him, and one is legal matters, and the other is the uh, School of Public Relations and popular opinion. I noticed that uh, Joe Biden's campaign came out and said, when I'm elected president, you will uh, be uh, funded equally. Otherwise, uh, the uh, no World Cup here or some something, you know. And I'm, I basically funding. I mean, I think no he funding, threatened I mean, funding with that, but it wasn't. Uh, yeah, he he didn't sound to me like it, as much as I like uh, Joe. He wasn't totally up on the. Uh, yeah, the, he, he doesn't uh, know the facts, right? Exactly. So, uh, all right. So we'll get back with that. Uh, you're listening to Over the Ball. Uh, with Kevin Flynn, Grail Hallett, and Sam Griswold. We'll be back with Professor Steve Bank after this. All right, our next guest is the returning champion here at Over the Ball. He's the Vice Dean for Curricular and Academic Affairs, my old job. And if that is not enough, he's also a professor of business law at the UCLA School of Law. He's a frequent commentator on soccer law issues, applying his business and tax experience as a legal affairs contributor to American Soccer Now website and other publications like Over the Ball. He explores the issues in more depth in his course, International and Comparative Sports Law, as well as Perspective Seminar, Law, Lawyering, and the Beautiful Game. And guess which one's the beautiful game? That's our game right here, which we're here to talk about. Welcome back to Over the Ball, Professor Bank. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. You're a busy man. I, uh, we're going to get to the women's, uh, you know, the judge's decision in the women's case, which I got to give you some, I don't know, props is the right word, but a little bit of a clairvoyant there because you, you sort of predicted what was going to happen. So we'll come back to that. But uh, the guys on the panel wanted to ask you real quickly about, uh, you were recently in a, in a seminar at the Aspen Institute uh, it's my phone's ringing. Sorry, it's my mother. Um, at the Aspen Institute, um, about legality with opening up uh, some of these sports leagues, especially when when children are in mind. But what what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's it's a um, it's a challenging question. Normally, the courts have been pretty clear that when you're talking about uh, the duty to mitigate risks, that it's not eliminate risks. Uh, there's going to be risks in society, both risks in playing game, but also risks generally uh, in, in interacting with other people. There even have been in the closest cases on this dealing with uh, MRSA, the antibiotic resistant staph infections. Uh, 
judges, uh, there's some, there's a case involving Iona College where a judge said, you know, it's not like you can protect against getting the flu when you walk into a facility. And so, you know, typically people think this isn't something that, that a youth sports organizer has to think about, but we haven't had a pandemic uh, in a long time and certainly not in our litigious in, environment. And so uh, it is something youth sports have to think about because there are there are public health guidelines, there are state guidelines, uh, and, and there, there's a, a lot um, of concern among parents. So even if, even if you're complying with everything, the parents may not be satisfied. But the big issue, I think, and the big mistake people are making is that the return to, to play order, or at least the, the removing of the stay-at-home orders means it's all clear legally. And that's not true. Um, those are political decisions made about aggregate risks and about the balancing, you know, how much, how many hospital beds we have against the risks that people are going to get sick. And so they're making some sort of general sense of, of what's the risk. It doesn't mean that someone who organizes youth sports doesn't have higher duties than that. And uh, so a lot of them are ignoring the kind of fine print uh, from public health authorities, from the CDC. Okay, maybe you return, but what to, to return, you need to um, exercise a certain amount of caution. Uh, and uh, if you think about it on the professional level, all of these leagues, they're, they're, the players are walking in with masks, they're getting uh, their temperature checked, they're staying apart, they're not sharing equipment, um, they are not interacting with people outside. I mean, that's a whole different environment than youth sports. But if you want to yeah. translate it, you've got to think about what's reasonable in a youth sports environment and probably is starting very slow. It's probably uh, staying within your community rather than traveling you know, across other communities. All, all these things, uh, it might, might involve changing the game for a while as you start it. So you're, you're just not going into full field scrimmages or something like that. Just, just give us some rules. Just give us some rules and, and you know, with, with science in mind and make the best decision we can and then get behind it. You said one of the things that you were, we were talking about before we got on here about uh, a parent cannot assume risk for a child, right? Well, in, in certain states, right? So that's a, there's a, a split in states among that, but you know, you, you're given a waiver. So oftentimes when you register, you're, you're given a waiver for your kid. Usually, oftentimes that's ineffective because the state doesn't even allow you to waive liability associated with another, with a minor. Um, sometimes it is, you're allowed to do it, but the way it's done is probably going to not hold up in court. Like it's done as part of a registration process. It's hidden. It's not very clear and conspicuous. All the kinds of things that if you're giving up legal rights, you really need to know what you're talking about. And these, most people have no idea that they've waived something. They've, I thought I just registered. I didn't realize right, yeah. the bottom was giving up my, you know, my kid's life. Um, so most of them are ineffective, but waivers done right uh, are, you know, can be effective potentially, but it's, but it is something courts disfavor, you know, they don't, obviously, because they want to know that you got something for it. Um, right. You know, the, the non-soccer example of this is, I don't know if you're following it, is the UFC events. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mixed martial arts uh, stuff. Uh, they have an enormous um, uh, waiver agreement that is just like uh, barely over the top, but it is. But that's the kind of thing. It's it's separate. It's it's uh, you know mentions COVID nineteen every every which way you know. Well, didn't Governor DeSantis give them a, a, a you know a must or there a, a vital essential, service essential service hysterical oh politics all over everything it's horrible so uh, all right well I hope there's not going to be a test on this professor because um, I would fail not those two guys they're they're not state school boys but um so let's um let's switch to the U S women's national team and their their case against U.S. soccer. 
Uh, were you surprised by the judge's ruling? Well, so I've, I've been asked this question a, a, a number of times. I, I there were things I was surprised about, but not the ultimate ruling. Um, I was I was somewhat surprised in the timing of the ruling because uh, the judge had had an opportunity for a hearing on the summary judgment issues and uh, and had uh, essentially because partly because of the COVID nineteen um, situation, the courts were closed in Los Angeles. Uh, the the judge could have either had telephonic hearings or video conference hearings or could have postponed the whole thing until hearings were held, but decided, no, I'll just take this case on the briefs. Um, and so typically when that happens, you think, well, the court isn't really going to grant summary judgment because it must be that, that you know, he, he's pretty clear on, on where he's going with this. and It's not going to matter, you know, to, to grant it. And usually granting it would be kind of a more serious step. So I was sort of surprised after having done that, that he ultimately granted the major issue. And didn't give the parties an opportunity to talk about it uh, um, orally. Although to be clear, oral argument is often not effective, right? It's you wrote down what you need to say, and now you say it out loud. What what exactly? What am I only an auditory learner or something? Like oh, that? you're killing all the Perry Mason episodes I watched <laughs> as a kid. That big. <laughs> Those were the jury. Those are with the jury, but we're talking about the judge. A summary judgment is a stage where you're essentially saying that. Um, there is no genuine issue or dispute over material fact uh, um, that would affect the outcome. I can decide this on the law because if, uh, even assuming the undisputed facts are true, here's where we are. And so uh, you, you take the jury out of it, the judge usually can read and, and understand. But so I was a little surprised at that. I was also a little surprised um, in general, a summary judgment motion is a is something that courts are reluctant to do because it takes the issue outside, out of the jury's hands. And so some judges, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, a chance for the judge they'll be reversed because, uh, not because they're wrong, but because, uh, you, you know, the-, the due, due process? The yeah, it was just sort of the too early. It's, it's not exactly due process, but that, that, that um, analogous civil version of that would be like, look, you just kind of did this too early. But, um, it is a, uh, but the reasoning of the, of the case, any lawyer who I've talked to, and I, I talked to you guys and explained this, and anybody who hears this was saying, well, now, wait a minute here, really, that's what it is? And I didn't even get into some of the details that we found out after I talked to you the last time, which is uh, they had not done all the discovery to show that uh, this case, the numbers don't even add up to a prima facie case of wage discrimination, at least on, on the numbers themselves, the rate per game was higher for the women. The women were paid higher per game than the men. So mm -hmm. that's not actually conclusive, um, but uh, if, you, if, if, if someone was coming to you as a lawyer with a case and said, uh, so I wanna do wage discrimination, first thing you ask is, All right, what were you paid? What were they paid? And if you find out they were, that the person complaining was paid more than the other person, um, it's not that you couldn't win the case, right? It could, there, there's bonuses, there's a variety of uh, things right. you could have earned, hypotheticals, but, uh, but that makes a harder case. And it certainly makes it easier for the judge to write the opinion. And then they could countersue, I would imagine. I think, you know, like, you owe us money. Uh, so, uh, Grail, you had a question for the professor. Yeah, so, Professor, it, it looks like um, the U.S. Women's National Team has asked for a delay in the June 16th trial date. I'm just curious what that is about. What do you see as the, the strategy there? 
So uh, that's a pretty typical strategy if you are looking to appeal um, in a, a non-final order. The problem, if this had been a summary judgment uh, in total for the men, I mean, for the, I'm sorry, for the U.S. soccer, then the you then the women could have said um, uh, that okay, the case is over. We want to appeal. That's a final order you can appeal. But you can't appeal from a non-final order. And the theory is is that let's resolve everything and then we'll go to a court. Uh, so this was a partial grant of summary judgment because the court left open some of the working condition claims uh, relating to travel, charter travel, relating to uh, the um, doctor's services, support services. And so that, uh, that means that the, the, um, the women have to appeal to the judge, to ask the judge for leave to file an appeal. <clears throat> and the way they framed this uh, is we would like you to delay the case, you know, two possibilities. One, until you decide our motion for leave to file an appeal. Or two, if the appeal, if you do give us the right to appeal, then until after the appeal is decided, which could be a couple of years later down the road. So <clears throat> that is, um, that's actually in the judge's interest. Uh, why would the judge really want to have um, the case proceed, a one trial proceed on these um, somewhat smaller issues, and then a year or so or two years later, come back and have to do another uh, trial on the, the wage discrimination claims if the, if the appeal was successful. So, so just to follow up to that, if they did decide to appeal, appeal, would they still be allowed in the interim to try to seek a mutually agreeable resolution with US soccer? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, okay. An appeal is a way, filing for an appeal now is actually a way to uh, keep the U.S. soccer's feet to the fire uh, to negotiate because it is definitely in U.S. soccer's best interest. That not only do they have the trial over the working condition claims hanging over their head while the appeal is outstanding, uh, and it, although that's not big money, that's certainly not what they want. They don't want to have like Sunil Gulati and Carlos Cordero and other people in trial, you know, in open trial. But it also um, <clears throat> means that you know the appeal could be successful. So uh, yeah, the the if they, the alternative would be they settle this extremely quickly, you know, mm -hmm. before June 16th, and that still could happen. But uh, if they need if they feel like they need more time, that's a good way to keep the thing going. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about two very separate tracks here, and, and my opinion had always been, one, the facilities argument, the, the way they were treated, the, the hotel rooms, the charter flights, that's a, that's a layup. That's like, um, you know, very obvious way to make that, make amends there. The salary one gets a little bit, you know, more uh, convoluted. It seems to me though, um, and I, we talked about this a little bit last time, there seems to be a bit of a Title IX mentality with this. And, to sort of say it's fair, but the numbers aren't the same internationally. And that's where your specialty is with international law and things. So they're, they're basically, are they asking FIFA to pay the women the same as the men? And will that have any legs? And then if FIFA pays U.S. soccer that money, they're asking U.S. soccer, well, you have to, because of our laws, pay us equally to the men, even though the two World Cups bring in different amounts of money. Yeah, so the, the FIFA prize money is really the crux of the dispute. So it's ironic because that's the money that's not paid by U.S. soccer directly. Uh, and uh, obviously, if the women could have successfully lobbied FIFA for a change or could have brought a claim in an international tribunal or, or a tribunal in, in Switzerland, uh, for example, 
uh, um, and gotten that changed, that might have made the U.S. soccer pay kind of irrelevant because if they'd gotten you know 44 million, then all is good. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, um, as I, I tweeted about this a little bit, the the payment by the federation, the payment by um, FIFA is to the federation, and federations almost never pay all of the money to the players. In fact, the only time I've, I've seen that happen is the U.S. women. The U.S. women actually got paid more um, for the 2015 World Cup than, than, than FIFA paid U.S. soccer. Um, but that was because U.S. soccer got paid so little, right? It was it's a little over, it got two million and they got paid a little over two million actually. So, uh, but there's not much. And uh, so for example, in France, when France won in 2018, the players got something like 30% of the total purse. Um, what, what does the rest go to? Well, most federations finance themselves out of this kind of prize money. So it's the development of the youth, youth national teams, your Paralympic teams, um, uh, you know, a, a programming, coach education, referee training, all the things that, you know, you need to run a federation uh, comes from this. So it's, 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 um, it's not like the players earn the money, it's the players' money. It's actually the federation earns the money through the entire, you know, two decade worth effort that brought them to the point where you have players who are winning. Right. So, uh, um, so I've always said, you know, in theory, U.S. soccer could combine money from the men and the women and then just distribute that evenly. Now there's some logistical problems. The men and the women are on different cycles for the world cup. And so it wouldn't quite work out. And the men have such a different arrangement. This is exactly, you know, the underlying basis for the court's decision in part is that, wow, the men are so different than the women, that there is no men. There's people who got selected to go in for an individual camp or made it to a roster, but there's no men's pool that gets the money. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how that would even work, other than you'd have to remember um, who was on the 2018 World Cup gets access to 2019 winnings, which doesn't seem to make sense because some of them right. in the pool still. So uh, but that's logistically difficult, but uh, but in theory, you could do that. The irony, of course, is that the in a year when the men didn't qualify for the World Cup, it would mean the women would have to pay over to the men some of the money they they earned. So that's not probably something there we, there we go. There we go. Uh, my, you know, probably but, don't want to do it either because they obviously think that, uh, you know, they don't get paid very much at all for participating. So the only time they do get paid is if they make the World Cup. And you said, you know, how they divide up the money, but the women have guaranteed spots where people are, are on it and the men don't. And that's another interesting question because it sort of seems like the men move in and out of the pool. Uh, if you're part of the qualifying, but you're not part of the, the cup, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of issues. But the main one to me seems to be, you have to look at the amount of money of, uh, of a World Cup brings in the women's and then the, against the men's now it's it pretty much dwarfs in comparison uh, but domestically i mean they have a strong argument here but internationally the numbers are so much bigger for you know international broadcasts that how do you share that money i mean tying tying the compensation to revenue is is particularly dangerous for both sides first of all the revenue is not easily separated uh, it's bundled in media contracts uh, secondly it is the kind of bet you're making on yourself that may not come through. For example, there could be a pandemic, in which case you'd end up with uh, making very little money. And Never by is. the way, the women went for guaranteed compensation. They're getting paid now. None of the men are. So, you know, that's one of the benefits of guaranteed compensation is. So I, I do think the re revenue. Wow. 
Time wow. is really difficult. That's a new fact, man. That's another one. They're still getting paid and the men aren't because they're not playing. Um, and I think part of the women want to do is a clawback as well, right? With, with some uh, of the claw, well, I mean, they'd like to, yeah. I mean, it's, but I don't think that's really part of the litigation that they're going to end up doing. But yeah, they'd like to get paid back pay for sure. Right. Sam? Yeah, so I'm wondering, Professor, if in a couple of years when the men renegotiate their CBA, if, you know, we might not find ourselves right back in the same situation, if their deal seems all of a sudden way more favorable again. Yeah, so this is one of the things that makes this whole litigation 3D chess. The issue with the uh, uh, settling this lawsuit is that it really only settles this lawsuit. It doesn't get a new collective bargaining agreement done with the women, doesn't get one done with the men, it doesn't get one done with Hope Solo. But you can bet that however they settle this lawsuit is going to affect negotiations with the Women's National Team Player Association, the Men's Players Union, and Hope Solo. And so they have to be very careful how they do that. And that actually is a big obstacle to getting things done. They, ideally, they get all parties to the, to the uh, bargaining table at the same time, but it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, so Professor, it, it, uh, just feeding off that last point, at this stage of the game, can either, the, can either U.S. soccer or the U.S. women's national team afford not to come up with an agreement? And, uh, and if they do, what do you think that agreement might look like? Well, I, I don't know about afford not to. I think it would be in both sides' best interest. Mm -hmm. So U.S. soccer absolutely has a PR problem as long as this case remains out there. And uh, that problem is only to get bigger. Uh, so it's in their best interest for sure to settle. They're, I don't think the working condition claims are very expensive, as Kevin said at the beginning. Uh, those are things that they should be able to settle. Fine, we're going to do this, or we'll pay you for charter flights or something. It's a, it's a easily um, arrived at amount. But uh, I think that it is in their best interest to settle. Moreover, uh, they can't move forward without settling this. The, the amount of reserve they have to have for this is pretty high. So uh, for the women, uh, the, the real question is they, they can't afford, at least in their minds, they think they can't afford to settle without um, accomplishing something. And so, because it's just, they just put forth so much work and effort on this. So, uh, and maybe I should hold off. I, can I, can you hear me in the background? Can you hear the... Yeah, you getting yard work done? So, yeah, so is Grail. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> like in the neighborhood. Let me see if I can close the windows and that will help. Okay. Sam, your editing skills will be called upon. No, we don't. I, um, I thought for sure that was yours, Grail. <laughs> yeah. No, although my neighbor has now just decided to cut his lawn. So it's... Uh, Can't hear it. I think, I think somebody it. sent an email around saying, hey, Grail's going over the ball. Can we make as much noise as possible, possible outside his window? Sorry about that. I don't know if that helps at all, but uh, maybe yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, we, we can always just acknowledge it, Professor. No worries. It's, it's, we're, you know, we're at home. This is the problem exactly. in our new world, right? Exactly. Uh, start me over. Where, where was Yeah, I? so just the, uh, afford, the affordability of, uh, of settling on both sides. So know? for the, the women, here's the, what the women are facing. Uh, there is a decent possibility that this could take more than a year and possibly as much as two years to get resolved on appeal. Notice how they had to file motion for leave to appeal. That even hasn't been resolved yet. So we're not even at the stage where they're definitely able to appeal. So this could take a long time. So for the women, what that means is during that time period, this isn't getting resolved. They've got a bunch of players who are going to get antsy on this. Plus, the women lost on summary judgment. 
So the chances the appeal are going to be successful are probably less than 50%. Not horrible odds, but still a gamble. Uh, so the women also during this time are dealing with a, a federation that has zero revenue coming in right now. It's not clear when international games will resume. Uh, and there's even talk the Olympics will be postponed or canceled, uh, even for next summer. So the women are dealing with a potential situation where they could win a hollow victory and uh, U.S. soccer has no funds to pay, or, uh, or they could lose after all of this. And, and most of them, uh, their careers are, are you know, winding down, if not retired by that. So uh, wow. there's got to be a face-saving settlement. My, my own view is that what, if I, I mean, it's hard, I'm not in the position of women, and I actually think the women have suffered lots of indignities, and I can see why they're upset, and probably many of them are what we might call um, microaggressions, you know, sort of a patronizing attitude, um, not um, taking them seriously in negotiations, um, all sorts of ways in which the women have been mistreated, like all the working condition claims are sort of little small things that add up, and so I'm sure there's lots of reasons why they don't want to settle. They're like, we got it, but um, but if you're really trying to get to yes, get to um, um, what we call Pareto optimal solution, where both sides are better off and the other side's worse off, uh, then you come up with a large number, you make that number payable over time so that it sounds big now, but discounted to present value, it's reasonable. Um, you make part of that number go towards something that U.S. soccer probably needs to do and should be doing anyways, but would make the women look good because they're the ones who've got it. So for example, um, pay... Uh, a big subsidy to NWSL, which is probably in trouble because they have no games going on and they might lose the whole season. So those are the kinds of things mm -hmm. that you could, you know, a, a payment for um, um, youth national team, girls youth development or something like that, a bunch of things like that, and then some money for the women. And I think if you could do that, that would save face for the, the women. What did we do this for? We did this for, you know, equal rights and, and you get them some money um, and you get a better deal going forward. That's really what we should start working on rather than working on but I don't know if the women are willing to do that. I can understand they wouldn't be, but, uh, but that's probably the only way to get to yes right now. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, very interesting. It's, uh, let me ask you something else. This is one of my, my pet peeves. Is there a case, uh, let's say a college that Sam and I went to, uh, the women have 13 scholarships on the soccer team. The men have two. Is there, uh, do I have a case to sue them? No, I mean, that's, that's uh, part of federal law, right? That's the, actually, the issue you have, the gripe you have is not with uh, uh, Title IX or anything like that. The gripe you have is, is that your university made a decision to prioritize football um, scholarships, and therefore they had to they, they, they make up for it with um, scholarships in women's sports. But um, it is, it's not a sport-by-sport sport comparison. It's an overall support right. for women support for men. That's the thing, you know, they always pit, uh, you know, it's usually the football team that sort of, and look at a school like yours, UCLA, they're bringing money in, USC, bringing money in, uh, you know, the, a lot of these big football programs, but the ones, and they call it uh, intense sports or revenue producing sports, but some of these football teams don't produce revenue, yet they still consider themselves a revenue producing sport. So it seems like there is no women's football team. And so, you know, men suffer on the other side because of American football. It's, it's a bummer. Everything it, seems well, to be going against soccer. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's, a, by the way, that is a, um, that's a, a TBD uh, from this pandemic, right? What is the future of Division One sports? What is the future of, of football, a game like football? And I actually think that the 
certain uh, in universities where they're dependent on tuition, um, they're going to like sports. They need to have soccer teams because that's actually a way to induce people to come, uh, especially mm -hmm. to some Division three schools um, that have football. Uh, whereas Division one, if those football teams aren't producing money, then they're a net drag. And they're mm -hmm. a significant cost. Big time. Well, they're not looking at it like that yet, Professor. They're looking not at yet, it like, you know, they're saying if that, that money's not brought in, all the other sports are going to have to pay for it, basically, or you're going to have to drop some of the sports. So it's, it's right. God, it's so convoluted. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And you know what? I always feel like um, as a soccer person in my 50s, it's like we've always been sort of uh, – what I, what I don't like about what's going on with the men and women is that we're always in this together. Soccer was like an, an other sport, an outsider sport, and the men and women were always together. What I don't like about this lawsuit is it's sort of dividing us um, – you know, the beautiful game as, uh, as you've written about and you've taught about. So, uh, so I appreciate you coming on professor and, uh, and not testing us, just letting us listen to your, all your information. Cause we all forgot number two pencils, but, uh, I hope you'll join us again on over the ball when we can, um, come back and, and see, uh, if the appeal goes through. And then once the appeal is there, so we're, we're looking at a long process here, right? Two, two years anyway, year and a half. It could be as much as two years. I, I, I hope it's not that long, but um, uh, the, the wheels of justice grind slowly, and particularly when uh, we've got a pandemic going on. So. All right, great. Well, he's the Vice Dean of Curricular and Academic Affairs and uh, Professor of Business Law at UCLA School of Law. Professor Bank, thank you so much for joining us on OTB. We'll talk to you again. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. All right, that's uh, always enlightening talking to Professor Bank. I think uh, something that's interesting, the women are still being paid right now during the pandemic when the men aren't because the men aren't playing. So one had guaranteed contracts and one had pay to play. So uh, yeah. that was interesting, huh? Very interesting. Well, it, it's interesting, you know, if I look at it from like a, a sales performance type thing, because that's the world that I come out of. The, the women opted really in their agreement to do a, essentially a front-loaded agreement where they got a lot of guarantees yeah. up front, and, but, they, but, they, but they gave up the back end, you know, the right. performance-based stuff. They made that calculated decision to go for a safer, more secure deal, but now they kind of want it both ways. Right. They overperformed. Right. If they had gone on a more performance-based metric, they would have made out much better in hindsight, but they, they decided to go with more of the uh, kind of safe front loaded thing and uh, deal and it ends up biting them. Uh, well, you know, a lot of uh, great women's teams that have come before them and one uh, is the 99ers. That story is headed to Netflix, which I thought uh, was interesting. I've been watching all these documentaries, you know, Jerry Agley at Indiana, you know, had one and uh, the, the one on, on the Jersey soccer and Carney. And so it's a lot of, a lot of great soccer documentaries out there. Uh, so this will be another one. It's I think, the you race. know what, Flinny, the thing, the difference is, I think this is going to be a dramatic series. Okay. So, oh, so it's not a documentary. No, I, I don't think so. I'll double check. If I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm sure uh, one of our six uh, podcast listeners will let me know, but, wow. uh, but, but I'm not a big fan of that because to me, you know, I'm a purist. I like the real action. I like people that actually know how to play soccer. Right, right, and I'm right. I'm not seeing act actresses play. So anyway, I I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read that it was going to be a dramatic, like a six part dramatic 
series. So we're going to have, uh, you know, look, I, I've been in that world before. Like if you put a ball at someone's feet, you can almost tell immediately if they, they can play or not, you know? And yeah. so there's nothing more jarring when <laughs> you're watching a movie and the, it's like, Oh my God. How about, you know? Okay. Did we go any further than the movie victory? Yeah, well, with you remember Stallone? Victory. You, Stallone? Yes, yes well, exactly. One of my favorite movies. You, well, I mean, you had Pele, you had Pele, who we know can play, but then you had Michael Caine, Sylvester Stallone, and a handful of other people that looked like they had never had a soccer ball at their feet. Oh, man. I watched Ozzy Ardila's in that movie. He does a sort of a, a drops a shoulder and plays the ball back between his own feet. While facing sideways, I, I went out in the backyard and like imitated that like a thousand times. I think one of my my moves in college from watching that movie. That was a great movie. I really enjoyed that. But yeah. so many times, you know, a soccer movie, if the players can't play soccer, really it's jarring. It pulls you right out because you kind of can't fake it. It's same thing with like, I remember Bruce Springsteen throwing a baseball in uh, Glory Days. It was like, oh, Bruce, throw a yeah. baseball, man. I mean, really? I mean, I will say in. Uh, going off topic a little bit, but in Bohemian Rhapsody, the recreation of the Live Aid performance was spectacular. It was one of the rare times oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I've seen a movie recreate an actual event. How they're going to recreate the 99 final at the Rose Bowl, though, if it is a draft, I'm like, give me the footage. Just give me the footage, please. Right, right. All right. So, uh, hey, one more thing I want to talk about uh, before we get going here. The proposed five subs rule for the remainder of the season faces a lot of pushback. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I know Sam had brought this up last week, and, and there are a lot of, uh, a lot of fans out there uh, and, and clubs, I would say, that they say that it favors the bigger clubs that have more depth yeah. and have more yeah. money, more money to be able to stockpile players. So if you're a Man City and you can basically, you know, you can sub in guys like uh, Jesus and the Sane and all these other guys that are like bench players at the moment. Not, you have Sa not Sane anymore. Sane's gone. Well, well, Sane isn't gone yet. Sane is still there. Sane's talking about going. Sane's been injured. Yeah. Um, he's talking about going to Bayern. That's the thing. But what I'm saying is they have five guys on the bench that would be starting for anywhere. most other Premier League teams. Be stars everywhere else, actually. Exactly. So yeah. a lot of people are grumbling about that. I still think, though, as a one-off, one-season thing, as a way to rest players, for the most part, it makes sense. But does it benefit the bigger clubs? Yes. Well, again, special situation. Yeah. Let's make some special I mean, rules. It does benefit the bigger clubs, and that talent-wise. But I feel like yeah. you know, often if you're an underdog team, you're playing – more defensive you don't have the ball like you're running more you're chasing the game you know your your whole style of play may be more about physical and fitness yeah, so, um, yeah. the ability to you know swap in more guys could could come in handy there too so i, I don't know i don't know how yeah. much and the bigger the bigger wealthier teams sam are always advantaged on a on an every game basis I yeah, mean, because right. they have better right. talent that's just yeah. the way it is yeah so you're again you're trying to find a way to play more games during a week and they're trying to figure out how to make it happen safely for the players so there's yeah. there's got to be again a compromise you know I mean, it's I mean, a much it, better it is what solution it is. yeah it's a much better solution than the 80 minute match which has been proposed right. which i can't I, stand no, that stop that no way. No way. So, all right, guys, that's uh, all the time we have today on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Bank from UCLA, uh, the School of Law, uh, Hastings School of Business. Really, uh, I, 
very enlightening, that, that man. I uh, enjoy talking to him. We're going to check back in with him, as I mentioned, as this case goes forward. Looks like it's being slow walked a little bit, though, so we uh, don't know the timing on that. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Soccer America and Ticket IQ. For Sam Griswold, the Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time. I'm over the ball.